Welcome to the Parents Place podcast with Hillary and Jen. Welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you guys with us today. We have a topic today that we are due to discuss, should have been discussed a long time ago, is a topic that I think will really help so many of you listeners out there. And so that's why I'm so excited to introduce Kate here today. She's going to share her story of resilience as she talks a little bit about her experience with postpartum and um, some of the skills that she has developed in order to build that resiliency in her life. So I'm just going to go ahead and turn the time over to her, officially welcome her here, and let her tell you a little bit about yes, her life. Go ahead. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me come. Um, it is a story that is, it's close to my heart. It's a, it's become a huge part of my life. It's one of those things where when you're in the hard, you are definitely not happy that you're there. You're not grateful for it. But now looking back, it has shaped my life into so much more than what it could have been. Um, so to just like share just a little bit about who I am, I am a mother of three. Um, I'm a writer. I write for a magazine. I studied English and I also perform in musical theater. So that's a little bit about me, just a little bit of background. And I'll just go ahead and jump in to my story. So I think we could just begin with the birth of my third child. Um, the whole pregnancy was awesome. Things went great. I was feeling good. Um, we were very excited to welcome our, our little boy. Um, my other two were a boy and a girl and we were just, our whole family was thrilled for this little guy to join our family. And we're so glad he's a part of our family. But about four days after uh, my delivery, it I knew something was off and I just, I, I knew I wasn't okay, but I thought, oh, well, I know, you know, I had had a little bit of the baby blues, mostly with my second, not as much with my first and thought I'm sure my hormones are shifting. Mm -hmm. You know, I was feeling a little bit anxious, but thought, well, it's, I'm sure it'll pass. But I immediately just decided, you know, this is my third kid. Like, I'm not even going to wait. I'm going to start reaching out for help and so I just asked a few neighbors like, Hey, I'm, I'm probably going to need a little bit of help. I'm not feeling okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, and me thinking like so confident, Oh, I'm on top of it. You know, we'll get through this, but something that just surprised me and totally threw me off is that it didn't get better. It didn't get better with like people coming and helping mm. when we were with my kids. It didn't get better as time went on. Um, it just got worse. And so, you know, of course, I went back into the doctor for my six week follow-up and was not doing well um, six weeks after the baby was born. And so from there, we started to jump in and try to find, you know, therapists, try to find psychiatrists, um, looked into medications and things like that. And things just continued to worsen and they worsened. And then about four months postpartum, things really started to spiral out of control that it was no longer just anxiety. It was no longer just the baby blues or depression. I started having panic attacks, but not just like a panic attack here and there. There was one day where I had three in a 24 hour period. Um, and they were, they were brought on by just simple stimulus. Like the kids would turn music on and somehow it was throwing my nervous system mm. into panic attacks. Um, one happened at a parade 
And um, for anyone who has or has not experienced a panic attack, it's extremely exhausting. It often messes with your digestive system. It would often cause me to vomit um, and and it, and shake. Oftentimes you feel like you're gonna die. That's usually a lot of people when they're in it, they, they'll repeat over and over, I'm gonna die. This is the end, I love you. You know, mm -hmm. or they think they're having a heart attack. There's often chest pain associated with it. That just gives you like kind of a quick overview of what those were like but you can't really stop them <laughs> when you're in them. You, you're, you just, you're in them. You're in it. I've had several of them and they're not fun. No, they are super scary. So scary. So terrifying. So at that point it was just like, okay, if I'm having multiple during the day, it was just yeah. rocking my whole mm. body and just exhausting me. Um, so we had already tried a couple different doctors, but we we decided to try another one um, and we're, I was able to get in to see a psychiatrist and um, he prescribed a medication that was like one of the safest, you know, I'm not necessarily going to share the name here because it's not like it's not safe. It is a safe one. Mm -hmm. However, it did not do well with my system. Mm -hmm. um, it caused something called the paradoxical effect, which it means it did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Mm. Um, on all SSRI drugs, you'll see something called the black box warning that, you know, you need let, let loved ones know when you start taking this medication, sometimes it can bring on suicidal thoughts, different things like that. So anyway, it was kind of like that, but blown to epic proportions. So I had already been having like panic attacks, right? But this medication, once I started on it and it got into my system, um, I woke up shaking violently. It wasn't the shaking of the panic attacks I'd had before. Like the whole bed was shaking and it felt like my throat was closing off. And a lot of my muscles were just contracting. And I mean, the shaking woke up my husband and I said, I don't know what's going on. Like, you know, I couldn't Ooh. speak very well, but, and he was like, what should I do? And we luckily at the time had a paramedic living across the street um, so in the middle of the night, he, he got our, our paramedic neighbor to come over. And, um, of course I didn't know, I didn't know what to do, yeah. but, but during that panic attack, there were just some odd things that I hadn't experienced before that now started happening. And those were intrusive thoughts. Um, and also just kind of weird out of control thoughts. Like I felt like I couldn't get out of the bed. If I did, I would throw myself against the wall. Or, you know, things that didn't make any sense, but that it just felt like something else was taking over my mind and body. Um, and then, of course, like when when it kind of started to come down, um, I, you know, had the normal digestive um, distress. And then and then all of a sudden it was just like hitting a wall of pain. It was just everything mm -hmm. in my body hurt. And the only way to kind of tolerate that pain was to run and walk. <laughs> and so in the middle of the night, I went and ran and walk walked in my neighborhood um, for about five hours just to kind of get through it. Oh. Um, unfortunately, the next day when I called the, the office um, to explain that I had had a problem with the medication, um, that was kind of the end. They, they didn't say, let's kind of have you come back in let's check things out. They just kind of canceled my follow-up mm. and said, okay. Cause I said, well, I can't take that medication yeah. anymore. So I think there must've been some kind of a misunderstanding there, mm -hmm. but I just thought really like, oh, I, I just have it? to figure it out now. Yeah. So it was that just, I felt so, so discouraged because I thought, okay, well, the medicine was supposed to help and it just made it worse. Mm. 
anyway, so that was, that was, that was like rock bottom, I would say. However, thinking, okay, I guess I have to figure this out on my own. I like tried to keep going mm -hmm. and you go two more months like that. Mm -hmm. And by Christmas, like I couldn't, my cognitive ability to even reason was really waning, mm -hmm. um, having a hard time holding up my head. Um, my appetite was totally gone. Lost the ability to swallow food. Um, could no longer fall asleep. Had forgotten how to do that. Um, and was just basically panicking about 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. There was usually about a 10% moment. And it often hit in the afternoon when I was like, maybe I'm okay, sort of. <laughs> but most of the time it was just panic. And, and so I was frantically trying to find lots of different things. I would try holistic doctors mm -hmm. and, you know, different things. People would say, why don't you try these essential oils? I'm like, I'll try anything. <laughs> I'll try anything. You just let me know. I'll try it. Um, but because of that experience with the medication, it created so much more anxiety about medication because I didn't know if that would happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's how it was at the time, but I kept trying, kept trying. And the, right after Christmas, I had four different appointments scheduled for the week after Christmas. And by the fourth one, my sister came to pick me up one morning after being up all night. And um, she was supposed to take me to my doctor's appointment and asked me if I'd eaten anything. And I said, no, I really can't eat. I just don't have an appetite. And she said, well, as my sister, you know, she's like, well, you just try for me. <laughs> and I said, okay, you're right. Like I need to try and eat. I will try. So I grabbed a little cutie orange and took it in the car with us. Cause I couldn't drive. Like it was a mess. Mm -hmm. It wasn't safe at the time. So she was so sweet to, to give me a ride to my appointment. But as I like, picked up that orange and peeled it and put a piece in my mouth like when I literally could not swallow it and I was shaking and I'm like okay I haven't slept and who knows how long mm -hmm. I just told her I said hey sis can you just take me to the ER like I I'm not getting better and whatever it takes at this point like I need to get better um that day realizing like how severe things had gotten I remember telling my seven-month-old baby I talking to him because nursing had become, it was one of the only like semi-positive things <laughs> that I had in my day-to-day -day life was just that bond with my baby. Um, but knowing my body had just reached a point where it had nothing left to give. I remember telling him, I can't, I can't nurse you anymore. Um, and I'm, you know, it's not like he was offended or anything, <laughs> but it was hard for me to let go of the last thing, but I was just to the point where I knew that I couldn't do that anymore. Um, and that I was ready to go to the hospital knowing like I might have to stay. And that was part of why I knew I had to wean him right then and there. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I went to the hospital and after having been to so many doctors and therapists up to this point, um, I had a really sweet experience with who I, a social worker who I like to refer to as my fairy godmother. <laughs> um, she, when she walked in the room, she had silver hair and little glasses on the end of her nose and big brown eyes. And I remember thinking she was the most beautiful person I had ever seen. Um, I was extremely weak at this point. I was laying, I couldn't sit in the chair. I was kind of laying sideways in the chair and she came in and started asking me some questions and for anyone who doesn't know this, if you, if you end up in the emergency room 
for mental health issues, they usually send in a social worker because they need to assess if you are a danger to yourself or others. That's just normal protocol. I didn't know that up until that point, but, but so she came in and she started asking me, you know, what's going on and um, to go into a little more detail of what was going on with like those intrusive thoughts, which they, they really were in a lot of ways, sometimes the catalyst of the panic attacks, because it would be, I would be sitting down nursing my baby. And as soon as the milk would let down, I would like have these very vivid images of me, like picking up my baby and just smacking him against the crib. And it's not like I wanted to do that. It was, and then it would terrify me. I remember having that happen and I ran to my neighbors and I, handed her my baby and I said I'm so scared I can you just hold my baby I just need to know he's safe because like I'm having these really terrible thoughts so there were I was telling her how I was having some of those thoughts how I was I was afraid when I would sit in a vehicle like I just constantly felt like I was going to open the door and jump out and so it was really weird a really weird experience to have like on the other side kind of seeing people experience suicide or lose someone to suicide and kind of have my own judgment of like what that would be like, well, why would you ever do something like that? And then having had those weird thoughts, it was, it like, wasn't even really coming from me. Mm -hmm. And I don't really, I can't really explain that. However, I feel like there's like the suicidal ideation, but there's also the, um, there's also kind of, I like to call it homesick for heaven rather than wanting to die. I mean, it is wanting to die, but sometimes I think that life gets to the point where your day-to-day -day is so painful that you just long for a place where someone loves you, someone will hold you, and where you can feel at peace. And I think that it created a lot of compassion for me, for other people who had taken their life or had experienced thoughts along those lines. Um, I understood that so much better. So I was explaining this to the social worker, my fairy godmother, and she, she just looked me dead in the eye and had been the first person that had ever been this bold to me. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it never had sunk in with anyone else, but I remember looking at me and saying, so I don't know you super well, you know, but I've been talking to you here for a few minutes. And from what I can see and what I know, you are not going to do any of those things. You know, the percentage of, and the chances that you're actually going to hurt your baby or yourself are so low. Um, and for some reason it like stuck. She knew that I had a really intense fear of medication because of what had happened before. And she was again, very bold. And she, she just looked me in the eye and she said, look, the doctor is going to give you some medicine here today. I want you to just try and take a deep breath and say, this is going to help. And I want you to be super brave and just take that medicine. Um, and it was, it was one of the quick acting drugs that like typically don't, they don't give to nursing mothers. And that's why I hadn't had it up to that point because I was too afraid of what it would do to the baby. So I'm trying to think what it even was. Ativan, I think is the it's one, it's like a Xanax type thing mm -hmm. that it kind of snaps you out of it uh, quicker, but they can be very addictive. So they're not really a long-term thing, but I was at a point where we needed something to snap me out of it, to try to get my nervous system to the point where I could like relearn how to sleep and eat. So they gave that to me and it was the first time in almost eight months that I was like, wait, maybe it's going to be okay. And I remember I ate that day. I ate some food and it was amazing. 
Um, but then of course that led to like some withdrawal symptoms that were really, really hard. I ended up only taking that for a week. Um, again, back to my fairy godmother, she told me, I want you to get the headspace app and I want you to meditate every day. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but I'll do it. Um, and I'll share a little bit more about this as we probably discuss, but I still meditate pretty much every day. And that was almost six years ago. So the meditation, um, um, changed things for sure. It re it taught me, I relearned how to fall asleep using meditation. So that was really cool. So that's kind of, that kind of gives you the worst of the worst as far as how hard things were. Um, if we want to do like a, I'll do, give you like a quick little timeline of my recovery. I would say I didn't really feel other than like the very short lived, you know, drug induced calm <laughs> that I had for a minute there. I didn't feel any real calm connection, comfort, peace for a solid 18 months, but I was working on it. And I, and I remembered that I had had those emotions before, but my nervous system just like was in so much turmoil as we were, you know, trying new medications and therapy and all of those things that it just wasn't there yet. So 18 months of really bad, but I remember at that 18 month point, I was out for a walk. My baby was 18 months old. And it would have been September the following year. So it'd been almost a year from, well, I mean, Christmas to September. What is that? Nine months since that ER visit. And I was out for a walk and the leaves were gold. They had changed colors and they were waving in the wind. And when I looked at them, I felt joy. And I just was completely overcome because I hadn't felt joy for so long and it was such a beautiful experience mm. to know that my recovery had gone to the point where I could feel joy and I just oh I can still just like picture myself being under those trees and just being so amazed like wow what a miracle here I am feeling joy for the first time um if you skip ahead to three years postpartum I was doing pretty well I think in about three years I was like functioning Mm -hmm. Still having some anxiety, um, symptoms, occasional panic attacks, but maybe only like two a year at that point. So functioning really well. Um, and then this is the reason why I think that the story of resilience, um, maybe why I, I could be one to share my story of resilience is that I had a realization, um, last fall. So last October, it would have been exactly five years from kind of my rock bottom time, that time when my baby was about four months old and I was having multiple panic attacks a day. I had the medication failure, um, was feeling extremely hopeless. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember, I'm a very spiritual person. So I remember one of the days laying in bed after being totally rocked by a, a panic attack and I prayed, I, I said a simple prayer and prayed that I would get well enough that someday I could make mac and cheese for my kids. <laughs> and that was my greatest desire to just be like functioning, kind of doing those, those normal everyday things, um, like laundry. Like I remember just being like, I just want to like get up and do laundry and make mac and cheese and make, you know, clean up a mess and read a story and not feel like this anyway. So, so I had remembered that prayer. So last, last fall, October, Five years from that point, I went on a trip with my husband and a group of family and friends, um, and we decided we were going to scale the entire Grand Canyon in one day. 
So it's called Room to Room. Maybe, you know, people might be familiar with that term. Um, it's about, it's somewhere between 20 and 26 miles. Everyone's like, things clock it a little bit different. And you drop about, well, elevation loss and gain is total about 5,000 feet. So it's like marathon length, but plus elevation. Um, it's a really big <laughs> thing. I was pretty nervous about it going into it. Um, however, I, I did it. I mean, long story short, I did it. And as I was on the final ascent, there's switchbacks that go up for the, like the final seven miles. You're just going up the whole way, the whole way, the whole way. And I, I was in extremely good condition. Like, like, I won't lie. I had been training. Well, honestly, if you go back, like I'd been working on stuff for five years, but I was training specifically for this event from January to October. So However, I didn't, I still didn't think I was going to be strong enough. But then when I was on those final switchbacks, I felt so good. And I was just going up I, and my body was just carrying me. And I was just amazed and amazed by the Grand Canyon. It was so beautiful and so exhilarating. And just as I was probably within the last three miles, I remember looking back over the Grand Canyon and right just popped into my mind was a memory of saying that prayer, praying that someday I would make mac and cheese for my kids again. And as I looked over, one of the most majestic places on the planet Earth um, and realized my body had carried me all the way across that, I realized that that prayer had been answered, you know, for whatever your beliefs are, I'm not like pushing mine on anyone else, but my prayer had been answered in such a way, such a miraculous way that I just was overcome with gratitude that not only had I made mac and cheese, I was able to accomplish a whole lot of other things. Um, and it didn't dawn on me until the drive back, like two days later when we were driving back from the Grand Canyon back home, that it, it was almost exactly five years, like within a week, almost to the day of that, that really, really difficult rock bottom time. And I, I found that to be significant. So... Anyway, it's not, and it wasn't just by accident. There was a lot of work, a lot of support, an entire army of people, specialists, therapists, doctors, friends, family that that were so key in bringing about that recovery. But I share my story in hopes that anyone who's in the thick of it, or even just halfway in the thick of it, knows that you can and you will get better. And if you, if you stick to it and you, you trust the process, you can get way better than you could ever imagine. The, the resources are there. The resources are there and, and it's, and you're worth it. You're worth whatever it takes. So I think that's probably a good, a, a good way to sum it up, so to speak. And then I think at this point, if, if we want to just talk about any other questions that that I could answer or anything to add to it. Um, go ahead and lead into that. Gosh, before I ask my questions, Kate, I've got to tell you, not to discredit anybody that has been on the stories of resiliency leading up to this, but I truly think this is probably the most powerful story that we have ever heard before. And these words are going to help so many people. Mm -hmm. This I is really hope so. amazing. Um, 
I want to take you back to the very beginning, um, because I think one of the questions that maybe some of our listeners might have are, you mentioned that <clears throat> you just didn't feel quite right, and you knew you didn't feel quite right, because you had had some similar experiences with baby blues, but not to this extent. Um, what are some of maybe those signs that you noticed um, that made you clue into maybe there's something bigger here that I that I didn't realize? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the most vivid memories as far as like that recognition was, um, so my cutest little baby, he hated being on his back. So, um, you know, as doctors and pediatricians, it kind of flips like the whole, what they recommend, yes. the recommendations to change. <laughs> and anyone who's had children knows that you sometimes are conscientious and trying to do the right thing. And of course we want our babies to be safe. Plus there's hormones raging and you're tired. <laughs> it's a lot, but I've always been kind of a conscientious person. Um, and that's a good thing. It can be, it can serve you well. However, it went next level big time with this issue because he was my third kid. And he, if, if I put him on his back, he'd sleep for 20 minutes mm -hmm. solid. And that was it. And then he would wake up usually with the hiccups, which cutest thing ever, right? <laughs> but whatever, whatever it was, the way that his esophagus had formed, the back was not working. Uh -huh. So when you have been sleep deprived for, you know, two months and you're trying to take care of three kids. Um, I also had a husband who had a job that required him to travel. Hmm. So that was an especially <laughs> difficult thing. I was extremely exhausted. And I remember just, just thinking, you know, for some reason, this kid loves being on his tummy and I put him on his tummy and he'd fall asleep like that. And I was like, oh, I'm not supposed to put him on his tummy, but then he'd fall asleep and he'd sleep and he'd sleep. And, and so I, then I kind of started thinking, well, maybe I'll just let him nap on his tummy. And, but then again, I'm so tired that I just started putting him to bed on his tummy. And, but it was like mentally, I was, it was like this catch 22 where it was like, it's better. He does need to sleep and I need some rest, but I'm not supposed to put him on his <laughs> tummy. That's the only way he slept. So I remember doing that and I would put him to bed on his tummy and he'd sleep. And, and at that point I was, I was still sleeping. I hadn't completely lost that ability yet because it was early on. I want to say this would have been more like somewhere between six weeks and two months postpartum. Um, when I was putting him to bed on his tummy and I would fall asleep and I was so used to him waking up within 20 minutes that like, I remember him falling asleep and he slept, he was sleeping soundly. And like, I think an hour went by and I was asleep and I woke up and panicked mm. and I was like, he's not okay. He's not okay. And I remember running into his room and picking him up and making sure he's breathing, like waking him up. Mm. <laughs> She's like, why in the world would I do that? But I didn't just do that once. I would repeat it over and over. And I'd be like, okay, I guess he's okay. And I'm so tired. And so I would put him back to bed on his tummy. And then I would wake up and be like, he's not okay. He's been asleep for an hour, you know? So I would do this over and over and over again. And I remember at, when I was doing it, I didn't see that it as a problem. But I remember talking to someone else. I want to say it might have been my mother-in-law. And sharing the story with her. And all of a sudden I was like, this doesn't seem like. I think I'm really not okay. Like I knew I wasn't okay, but I'm like, this is like very repetitive and it's very not like logical. Like he's, he is okay. He's doing okay. And I, I remember going to the pediatrician and explaining to him, like, I'm so worried. He'll only sleep on his stomach. 
I'm trying to put him on his back, but I'm having this issue. And I remember even the pediatrician saying, you know what? One of my kids was a stomach sleeper. If he needs to sleep on his stomach, he's going to be okay. You go ahead and put him on his stomach. But it was like my, my nervous system couldn't let go Mm. of the fact that like I was doing it wrong. I was doing it wrong. I was doing it wrong, which now like in retrospect, looking back, that was kind of more the OCD, like the, a compulsion. It was a compulsion that I was doing. So that was one of the times I was like, oh, wow, this is like off. This is really off. We need to do something about it. Um, but, but that was, and then the panic attacks. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. just that day I went to the parade, um, and, and the parade rolls up and it's so fun. It's loud and they're playing music and people are throwing candy and there were balloons on floats and things like that. And for some reason, that stimulation just like threw me into a panic attack. And it was so embarrassing. It was right there in like public, mm-hmm. you know, it was a little parade in a little town, but I was just, just mortified and exhausted. And, you know, my husband had to like drive me home. We had to leave the parade and my kids were watching me have this panic attack, but it wasn't the first I had had that day. So that was another big sign that I needed to. I really needed to find help. Well, I just, it's, I think as, as women, we hear about the baby blues and postpartum depression and you get educated to an extent when you're in the hospital, you know, of letting you know of that information, but it's probably hard because everybody's experience is different. And so what happens to one may not happen to another. And so I love that you can share kind of some of those those signs because those may be signs that other people are are having experiencing even right now. Yeah. I also think the people around you have a different understanding yeah. of what it is. So you'll have those people that may be really supportive, <laughs> but then on the other hand, you may have those people that are like, suck it up. This is your third child. You should know how to mm-hmm. handle these things. And so having groups of people can also make you just wonder is it really mm-hmm. what's going on in my mm-hmm. brain yeah what whatever it may be so Definitely. i think it's important to have a good support system because you know, we're going to need help and i love Definitely. that you brought that up at the very beginning because that's one thing we've talked about a lot on this podcast is being able to find that support system mm-hmm. that village that group of people that you know that you can turn to and trust Mm-hmm. because parenting is hard yeah, and is. we can't do it on our own. And so I love that you, you know, from the beginning, you made mention of some of these neighbors and friends where you said, I'm going to need some extra help here. Mm-hmm. And that was a big thing to do. And a lot of people have a really hard time doing that, admitting that this, this is tough. This is tough, help. but I'm going to need you. Yeah. There was a, a coworker who used to work here, social work. Mm-hmm. So she had all of the information, all of right. the education and her baby was probably her second was probably six or seven months old when she finally told me that she had postpartum and it was really, really hard for her. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Mm-hmm. I could have come over and helped you. Yeah. And she's like, I just didn't want anyone to know. And I'm like, just tell me next time I'll <laughs> right. come over and help. Yeah. Well, and I think in that mind frame, which I think maybe a lot of women can identify with this is that we think, oh, like they're so busy, you know, they don't, they don't really have the time and energy. They're probably just as tired as I am, but having been there Mm -hmm. and now, you know, being able to be in a place where I've recovered, 
if I knew anyone, not, not just like a mother, any person was in a situation where they just needed someone to sit by them. Cause there were times when that was literally all I needed. Yeah. I was just like, I just need someone to sit by me. And it was so awkward. Cause there were people that would like offer, like, <laughs> can I help you with anything? I'm like, could you just come over while I, yeah. and like, just stand by me and talk to me while I like wash the dishes. And some people, a lot of the people who understood were like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I would echo that, that like, if I knew anyone just needed someone to sit by them, I, d- I wouldn't care day or night, you know, if it was inconvenient, I would drop everything and I would come and be with you just because literally every person and every mother, everyone is worth whatever it takes to get better and to, to be okay. It just it's worth it. So, so yeah, I would say that that reaching out and that learning, I mean, it, it is hard. It's one of the hardest things, mm-hmm. but, but I just, I hope that I could send that to some of the listeners, just that message that if you question it, like, just, just like lean into that fear and just do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like just reach out. There's gotta be somebody that, that can come and just be by you for a minute you know, for a couple hours or whatever, just to get you through. I just had a, there was a quote by somewhere. I can't remember what it was. It's sometimes you have to lean into the dark or step into the dark to be able to see the light. And I really like that because in hard times, lots of times we do have to, okay, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to take that next step. And it may be dark and scary, but there's a light at the end. Yeah. And it takes the, it takes that courage to just take the step. Mm -hmm. And, and that it is like, it is worth it to, to just do that, to reach out and ask for help. So your story is filled with so many different, um, resources, which we've talked a lot about, uh, out of all the things that you found that helped you, were, were there s- certain ones that maybe helped you the most? Ah, oh, that's, that's a really good question because all, all of the resources really, are so important. So I want to share like two things here. Number one, um, I remember my dad um, talking about this when I was kind of in the thick of it and had tried different doctors and had tried, you know, was considering different um, medications and different things like that. They just, the decisions felt so overwhelming because it was like, I wanted to get it right. Like I wanted to find the right therapist or I want to. And, and so sometimes that fear would almost like paralyze me because, and that's part of anxiety is like having Mm -hmm. a hard time making those decisions. So I remember him explaining to me saying like, picture yourself, like you're in one of those garden mazes, you know, like you've seen them in the movies or, you know, different, and they actually exist where you're walking through hedges and you'll walk and you'll take turns and you'll take turns and then you'll come to a dead end. And he explained this to me. He's like, now, Kate, I just, when you hit a dead end, like, don't let that discourage you just turn around and go another direction. And for some reason that helped me when I would try something and it didn't work, I would think, Oh yeah, I just need to like try a different direction that it's a process. Like there's not really a finish line because mm-hmm. I wanted a finish mm-hmm. line, you know, like we all in our minds, like we want a finish line, but with stuff like this, there's just not a finish line. And sometimes you'll feel better for a while. And then you'll think, wow, I'm like really not doing well again. What's going on. So I would say, keep in mind, you just got to keep trying um, different things. Um, and then as far as like one of the things that stands out in my mind as one of the most um 
just, I don't know, one of the most helpful, I think, that really helped my recovery. It's it's a little bit different. So just each, I hope our listeners can like interpret this for their own selves. Um, uh, so at the point, so I don't know, know how to start this, but suffice it to say, about when I was around that 18 month point, when I said, I shared that story about the first time I had felt joy with mm-hmm. the leaves, it was around that time when I was like, I was feeling better, you know, not, not great, not perfect. I still had some really annoying things like, um, light and sound sensitivity mm-hmm. that would get my heart racing. And, and I would, I would kind of have like mini panic episodes or just anxiety in general over simple everyday tasks, like taking my child to soccer practice, you know, driving in the car, going to the grocery store, um, starting the laundry, things like that. And, and I was functioning, but it was still very uncomfortable. And I remember feeling frustrated that my nervous system hadn't figured out that like, this isn't a logical time to be afraid. And this is, you know, it was just, it just felt like it was muddled and mixed up and that's normal. That's part of the illness. So I remember at that time getting an email from a musical theater company, a community theater company, um, saying that they were holding auditions for an upcoming musical. And I thought that's like legitimately terrifying to audition for something. And I sang, I sang for years, like before I was a mom, I was really active in, you know, high school and college in choirs. And I took, I had like a vocal teacher and I studied, um, I studied that. And I also studied English. And there was this side of myself that when I became a mom, it had kind of gone dormant. And at this point it had been, gosh, I don't know, 10 to 12, 12 years, 12 years of really not doing some of those things. But I, I saw that audition and I thought, hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder if I just purposely like did something terrifying, yeah. if it would kind of just start to like knock my nervous system back to where it needs to be. So that's mm-hmm. like a silly idea. It wasn't somebody, somebody told me that I just decided to do it. So I signed up to go audition and, oh, it did a number on me. <laughs> like the, the nerves were so intense And my whole body hurt for at least 24 hours after it was wild. And I kind of expected that because I had been doing that, you know, and I had had some of those experiences. Um, But at the time, my mind hadn't gone really past the whole audition thing. It was like, if I just go audition, it will be scary and it will help me get better. But then when the cast list was posted and my name was on it, I was like, wait, now what? (laughs) And, and it, it like was very flattering, but at the same time I had major imposter syndrome. Cause I was like, wait, I don't, I don't do musical theater. Like I seen, but I'm like, do they know that? Should I tell them? <laughs> and then I thought, well, what if I just tried? And I remember because I was still struggling with light and sound sensitivity. I was like, well, what if I just try, what if I try and then I can't because of the light and sounds anyway. So I went into it just kind of tentative not really sure. Plus I had little kids and that it was a big time commitment, but I just decided to just do it anyway. And I went and it, I, it was like, it, it just was like all of the things I loved because I had studied Shakespeare and poetry and literature. And so it's like storytelling, but it was also music. Another thing I was passionate about. And I just started moving forward and did, it didn't really dawn on me until, you know, five or six weeks into the process. One day I realized, I'm not sensitive to light and sound anymore. And I was like, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. 
And as I've learned and studied, there's something about being creative. There's this creative part of each of us that when it, when we don't nurture that side of ourselves, then like our brains don't do well, our bodies don't do well. And for some reason that changed things in a huge way, like physically major physical change. So that's kind of like an unorthodox answer. However, I think that like, for me, I had to learn part of the part of kind of what gets us sometimes into these places of, of severe depression as mothers, I think sometimes is when we feel an intense expectation that we are to nurture everyone else around yes. us. But um, through having that experience and seeing what it was like when I, I had really like not been nurturing me because I thought I was just there to nurture everyone else and saw what it did. And then when I started nurturing myself, that was when it like dawned on me that if I am here to nurture a family, you know, if that's part of my role as a mother, an important part of that family is the mother. Mm-hmm. And if I'm the nurturer, it is my job to nurture, to nurture the mother. And so I, like I did it. You, just kudos to you mm. for recognizing that yeah. the nurturer needs to be nurtured. Absolutely. <laughs> I, over the years, that is probably all of the pairing classes, everything Mm -hmm. that I've ever done. That is probably one of the hardest things for women to say, okay, I'm going to let these other things go so I can take care of me. It's like, they think this is like a sign of weakness or not, or I can't be a mother. I'm not a good mother. If I'm taking time for myself, Yeah, really, that is so important. Yes. And I love to nurture the nurturer is so important. Definitely. So you well, can't nurture halfway full <laughs> or empty. No, you can't. And obviously we've talked about self-care here mm-hmm. in this podcast many times. And I think sometimes we get the idea that self-care can happen after everything else is done on the list, right? right. If I can accomplish everything else, then you're gonna get I get to permission. have that time to yeah. myself. And I love that you bring up the self-care is important even in times that could be considered to be a crisis, right? Those are probably the times when we need self-care more than anything else. Yes. And so being able to take that time. Oh, this is, this is filled my cup. I love this. <laughs> um, so maybe, glad. maybe just to kind of close up, if I can ask, how are you doing now? And, and what are some of the things that you continue to do that you have learned through this journey that continue to help you? Definitely. Yeah. So I am doing incredibly well. I don't, I don't really think about anxiety. I don't really think about a lot of the things that consumed my every waking second for, for years. And when I have that realization and I remember, it's always this wonderful realization, like every day, I don't even think about it. I feel love. I feel connected to my children. I feel connected to the people around me. I'm using my talents. You know, I've been, um, I've been now in 12 musicals since then. Wow. <laughs> I don't want <laughs> hardcore and have grown so much. I just learned to tap dance this year. Um, and I'm, I'm just doing a lot of things that I didn't know. Like I, it's like living life a second time around. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm doing well. I'm healthy. Um, that food tastes good. One of the, th- one of the things that like, I always get kind of tickled and excited about is how 
easy it is for me to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I take a nap almost every day. That's something again, that like, it really took hard training to like, to make myself do that to know. Yeah. The kids might go crazy. Mm-hmm. They might run in five times. They might disturb me. They might watch TV the whole time. It could be two hours. It could be 15 minutes. And to like sit with that uncertainty and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I do. My kids know like during the summertime, I just let them know, hey, I'm going to be taking a nap. You know, if you need anything, you can come in at this time. They're a little older now, so they can understand that concept better than when they were little. Mm -hmm. They often did burst in the room. But I just, it was that discipline of just telling myself, I'm going to do this every day because I know I do better. So I take a nap every day. I'm still taking medication. Um, Another thing that has done wonders for me was um, healing my gut health. You know, there's definitely not time during this podcast to go into that, but, but that has, that has been really awesome is to learn how to nurture my gut um, with IU supplements and different things like that and nutrition. And I still go to therapy. Um, when I was really sick, it was more like every week, mm-hmm. but once, once I was doing well, you know, I don't, I don't go on a regular basis necessarily, but a lot of my healing, a lot of, um, my recovery has dealt with a lot of relationships within my family. Some hard conversations have happened down the road that, that I needed in order to get feeling better. And so I just always keep therapy open. And if things crop up, if one of my kids is having a hard time with something and I don't know how to deal with it, or if I, if I find myself, you know, having behaviors or thoughts that, that I recognize, oh, like this is, this is intense. Then I just, I just put, I just go to therapy and I love therapy. I do it. I recommend it for everyone. So I think, I think that includes a lot of the things that I'm still doing every day. I still purposely try to do things that scare me. My next big adventure is scaling. I'm planning to summit Mount Whitney um, on August 15th. So that is, that's the highest peak in the contiguous U.S. Mm-hmm. It's about 14,500 feet. So I'm planning to summit that and come back down in one day. That's, oh, so it's kind of like Grand Canyon rim to rim, but on in a different way. And it, it scares me, like it legitimately scares me, but I, I've just learned like the tap dancing, mm-hmm. um, just different things that have scared me. I've just, I try to purposely stretch myself to convince my mind that I can do things that are scary because that translates into the everyday things that scare us, like being a mom, like we shouldn't be scared of that. Right. No, not shouldn't. I don't even want to use that word, but it, it is scary. It's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It's a big thing. So if, if I can scale big mountains, then I can be a mom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think this has been one of my favorite episodes. I think there is a mom out there that this is going to resonate with and she's going to be saying, going to change her life. All right. Yeah. She can do it. I can do it. And I just think it was fabulous. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. We would like to thank all of our listeners coming today and checking out this podcast episode. We hope that you're having a great day and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Parents Place podcast. If you would like to reach us, you can at parents at the familyplaceutah.org or you can reach Jen on Facebook, Jen Daily dash the family place. Please check out our show notes for any additional information. 
Our website is thefamilyplaceutah.org if you're interested in any of our upcoming virtual classes. We'd love to see you there.